Corinne Rush Drutz is the CEO of Kensington Health Foundation. She joins me now. Corinne, thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. So first of all, tell us a little bit more about Kensington Health. So Kensington uh, Health is actually uh, one of the largest centers uh, in the city. Uh, We provide different types of community care. We're situated on about three and a half acres uh, in, you know, the middle of the city, right above Kensington Market. And uh, we provide different types of community care, everything from all different types of clinical and ambulatory services uh, to resident care, for long-term care and hospice care, which is a whole suite of different palliative care programs. So it's really about offering community care where people need it, which is different than healthcare in the hospital. Yeah. You've been a leader in the world of marketing and fundraising for 15 years. You've worked at the AGO, the Art Gallery of Ontario, uh, the YWCA, uh, Baycrest, and now Kensington. What is it about specifically donor engagement that interests you? Um, well, I, I, I mean, I love working with the community and I love working with people, but I think that what connects me the most is the cause. I'm very cause driven mm-hmm. and it's about access. So, you know, it's a funny question because if you look at all of those, you know, different organizations, you might say, well, what's the connection between art and long-term care, end of life care, you know, women's services on the ground, and it's all about access. The more people have access to services in the community, the more they feel socially connected, um, the safer they are, the more engaged they are, the better we all are. Yeah. Do you think that we have the access that we used to? I feel like when, you know, when I was growing up, uh, you could go to the community center, you could, you know, there was just so much more access. Now everything comes with a cost. Is, is there as much access as there needs to be to just the essential things that make a city move and grow and just pour into the members, the, the, the citizens of the city? I think that's a really good question. And I think we have to frame access differently in different periods, yeah. actually. Um, that's a really smart question. And part of the challenge is that I think we we change culturally in different moments and certainly COVID has, you know, proven that to be the case. Mm. Um, Communities look different now than they did before and where people get access to different kinds of services, that's definitely changed. And we need to adapt to that as opposed to the other way around. So when I think about that for healthcare, that means that it's better for people to get access to services in the community because it's easier for them. It's less anxiety provoking. Um, And that's a very good thing if we can get more people, more access to service and have healthier communities. Similarly, you know, you're talking about the community centers from when, you know, you and I were kids Mm -hmm. and that's true. But those are purpose-built institutions. I don't think that you need to get a sense of community in a center that's built for that. That was one of the great things that I really loved about working at the AGO was that, you know, we had a free after three program um, and kids would skateboard uh, downstairs and way better place for them to be after three o'clock than in the mall. Mm -hmm. So um, I think access is about where you can have it and where you can find a great sense of community. Yeah. No, I think I think it's important. I think 
for those that don't have access to, let's say, the AGO or live closely, the, the community center really is your hub, right? And it's creating that sense of belonging wherever that is in the city. Uh, yeah, I not, yeah, barriers, I think, exist. You know, it's not just about if you don't live close enough. If you feel that you can't belong somewhere, Absolutely. that's a different kind of barrier as well. And so I think access comes along with understanding where are there places where we create welcome for yes. community. And that's that's equally as important as actually having the access. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, a number of studies have shown that Canadians are less inclined to give. And, you know, you're in the world mm-hmm. of fundraising. Um, how do you find that, um, you know, it, it, I think after the pandemic as well, people are holding on to their purses a little tighter. Now, with inflation going up, uh, things are more expensive uh, as well. Um, And so are people being maybe more particular about who they give to um, or do we just have less money? Well, I think I think both. Uh, But in addition to that, I don't think that they're less inclined to give. I think that these are this is a tough market and people have been hit by, you know, a fluctuating period in which uh, those who've had savings have watched them dwindle over a period. um, And that's a very natural and real anxiety. Uh, And we are definitely seeing attrition in not only the number of people who give, but the amounts that they give. And uh, there are different trends in giving from depending on how old you are. Uh, so young people tend to give more of their time and small increments to lots of different organizations, whereas, um, you know, as people age, they tend to understand that you can actually make a bigger impact and a stronger impact by investing either little bits over a period of time or, you know, actually partnering with an organization to make something happen. I don't think people are less inclined to give, um, but I think they are becoming one smarter about it, which they should be. It's an investment like anything else. Well, you would research an investment. Of course, you should research the organization, uh, you know, to which you're you're donating your hard earned money. That that seems very appropriate. And it's an entirely um, it's a great thing for donors to do. At the same time, I think um People do have less to give right now and markets go up and down. Um, And so they are thinking quite cautiously. That makes it really challenging to fundraise for sure. Uh, But I don't think that they are less willing. It's just a challenging period. And so working with them, we certainly see that they take longer uh, lead time to make a decision. Um, And even then, the amount that they're able to give is 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 not necessarily as significant as it otherwise would have been prior to the pandemic. But Canadians overall want to give. We have very high levels of uh, uh, not only donor participation across the country, uh, but Canadians volunteer, which is also a really significant way of giving. Um, and I think more than half of Canadians volunteer their time, which, you know, that's just something to make you proud. Yeah. No, as, as someone who runs uh, my own not-for-profit, I, I absolutely know, like, it has definitely been a challenge to uh, 
get people excited, but you're right. People are very intentional about what they give to. And when they do uh, find a cause that they are passionate about, they are passionate about it and they will do everything for it. It's just, it's, I I find that we've seen kind of a change in the landscape and maybe for the better, right? Because then you have more intentionality with how people give their time, their money, their effort as well. Corinne, let's talk about how expensive it is to get old in this country, uh, much less this city. Uh, I was just having uh, lunch with a couple of friends who are caring for their older uh, parents, and they were just talking about the cost of, you know, homes and, uh, you know, just health care, all of the things. And uh, I know, as you know, you've talked about the, the community aspect of what uh, Kensington does how are you able to to see that, see the impact of how cost has impacted people as they get older? It, it's an expensive city to grow old in, that's for sure. It's an expensive city to live well in, uh, and it's an expensive city uh, to grow old in, and it's an expensive city to die in. And I have to say that those are all things, you know, towards the end of the spectrum, we don't talk about nearly enough. Um, and that's, it's a, it's a big gap, I think, in um, public discourse, because we need to talk about not only, you know, saving, we talk about saving for retirement, and there's all kinds of, in, you know, incentives in order for individuals to, to save for retirement. But we don't necessarily talk about um, how to save and, and, and how to navigate uh, what will happen if somebody gets ill, uh, particularly if they get terminal illness um, and become palliative. And those are those are situations where um, someone can be ill for a very, very long period of time. And so, you know, you've mentioned your friends who are caring for their parents, um, end of life care and the spectrum of sort of, you know, needing long term care, perhaps palliative care, and then truly end of life care right at the end can become very, very expensive, especially if somebody uh, really needs uh chronic support um, and and a loved one is expected to care for them, they may not have the skills. Uh, if they have to take off time from work, there's the uh, expense of doing that. So it's really doubling down because there's the expense of, you know, whatever medical accommodations they might require in the home. Uh, and then the loss of time at work uh, and the stress that that takes on someone, which which is it has its own costs. Um, and they're not just um, financial costs, but they're they're human tolls that they take uh, on individuals. And then, you know, not just that, but what what's what are the equipment? Uh, what what kind of equipment is necessary for an individual to support them? And not all of those things are necessarily known or available. Um, and that's why it's really important to ensure that you get that kind of support. Uh, and there are supports like the kinds that Kensington offer. And so it's really important to understand that aging is a trajectory. Um, and you know, particularly if somebody has illness, certainly, mapping that early uh, is really, really important. And talk to me about how hospice plays uh, a role in all of this. I know Kensington has a, a hospice facility. I, I do remember visiting a dear friend in hospice before he died. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we talked a lot about hospice care during the debate around euthanasia-assisted um, uh, death in this country. And a lot of people felt like that hospice didn't get enough uh, attention as an option. 
uh, in end of life conversations. You're right. We do not talk about death at all and we don't talk about it well in our society. Uh, So help people understand, uh, you know, how important hospice care can be in the conversation of, of getting old and, uh, and, and just preparing for dying and having that, those convert, those hard conversations with your family. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, first of all, it begins with advanced care planning and having the conversations. So, you know, you've said it right there. It's really, really important to have that kind of uncomfortable conversation with your family. So if you are the child, you know, broaching it with your parents, what do you want? What are your desires? You know, talk to me about that so that you're having that kind of open discussion, recognizing it's easier for some families than it is for others, but not having it is worse because not having it sometimes can mean Um, you know, for children anyways, that um, they actually don't know what their parents want. And then it becomes that much more complicated to navigate that later. But usually, um, it's really important uh, for for kids, because hospice offers uh, an end of life spectrum. Hospice care is really for end of life right at the end. But there's all kinds of supports that one can have as part of palliative care program that lead right up to that. And Dying is a process if somebody has been diagnosed with terminal illness, and those can become quite complicated. Hospice care is there to actually support people with wraparound services all the way through their journey, their healthcare journey. And, you know, it's not as though it's a secret if somebody has been given um, a, a terminal illness diagnosis. So it's about offering them the type of support and care and also care for the caregiver uh, throughout that journey. So, you know, somebody you can and you can live really, really well um, until the very end. And people should they should live in the community. So hospice care really offers uh, from palliative support all the way to end of life care. And that's what we offer at Kensington. Um, And it's it's an option for people to be able to go into a home and have a really peaceful, comfort, comforting place in which they can spend their final days. It's about dignity. It's about choice. And most importantly, it allows the family to just be family as opposed to being a caregiver, which is a huge burden on on family members and in our culture. We have a very, very high level of responsibility that is placed on family members to care for their loved ones. And that's completely understandable. Um, But most people don't actually have the skill set necessary from, you know, a a practical nursing perspective to to actually, you know, deeply care for a a loved one. Um, You know, we, we don't necessarily know how to have, you know, offer medical supports, administer medication, in some case, you know, hook up IVs, et cetera. Those are really specialized skills. Um, And hospice care allows for that. The other thing that hospice care is great for is that hospice care is better for the healthcare system. Hospice care costs less than half. So uh, an acute care hospital bed um, uh, costs about $1,100 a day, Mm -hmm. but the cost of one day of uh, hospice care in a bed at Kensington Hospice is $460. That's Mm -hmm. less than half. So it's much better for the system. It unburdens the system of of patients who should not be in hospital beds. Hospitals are places to go to get 
curative care, for acute care. They're not places to go to die. Um, that can be offered in a home with comfort and dignity. And so hospice care is better for the individual, it's better for families, and it's definitely better for the system. Thank you so much, Corinne, for your time today. And really, I, I think the latter part of our conversation about just having what could be seen as an uncomfortable conversation, but a necessary conversation when it comes mm-hmm. to dying needs to happen more. And, uh, and and that hospice can be an option for many people, especially those who are considering end of life and, and so forth. And just that whole conversation around euthanasia that we're having in our country. Thanks again, Corinne, for your time. Thank you for making space for this discussion and for, you know, willing to have an uncomfortable conversation. It's not so bad. I do it all the time, Corinne. Thanks yeah, so much. Excellent. Take care. Well, thank you for that. <laughs> Corinne Rush-Drutz is the CEO of Kensington Health Foundation.